We're going to continue a series that we started uh, that uh, Gwyneth prayed over just a moment ago called Avoiding Colossal Mistakes. Uh, The notes are inside of your bulletin. And we're going to continue with this. I heard Jake did a great job last week. I haven't had a chance to listen to the message yet uh, because we were so busy celebrating one of Seth's transitions, which was his birthday last Sunday. But um, I'm excited about this message. I did read the text, and we've been praying together as a team on how to continue with the series. And this week, we're going to look at a specific mistake that I think happens a lot in our lives and in the life of the church, which is delayed reconciliation. And so I'm going to explain that word in a second. It's not a word we see very often or it's used very often in our common context. But reconciliation, when you think about this word specifically, has the idea of something coming back. That's what RE means. And conciliation, think about a conciliatory speech. When someone loses, they want to bring back into right relationship what's just happened. And so the idea of reconciliation is to bring back to right relationship with people or with God based on a standard that's been put out there. And so that's the idea of reconciliation. And I think for you and I, we many times delay reconciliation, whether it's a relationship or getting right with God. We don't come back to what that really means and what that's supposed to look like. To help you understand it, let's think about this for a second. How many of you reconcile your checkbook? Curious. Okay. The rest of you need a business class. Okay. So we used to actually have to learn that when I was in high school. I don't know if they still teach that. We had to learn how to reconcile checkbooks. And if you don't reconcile your checkbook, what happens? Have we got any accountants in the room? What happens over time if you keep delaying and waiting to reconcile a checkbook? You write an overage, right? Or you, or you don't even know what's in there, right? So over time, what happens is it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And you don't know what's really in your checkbook. This is the concept of reconciliation. There's a standard by which. Now, here's the interesting thing about the standard. The standard is the bank's statement, right? Whether you get it by print, Bonnie's like, I'm all over this because this is what she does, okay? Whether you get it by print or you download it, the bank's reconciliation is the standard. So here's what you can't do. You can't go one day into the bank and say, hey, I see that you say I've got this much, but I'm saying I've got this much and you're wrong. That doesn't work, does it? I don't care what generation you come from. It doesn't work that way. There's a standard that they said, this is a standard Now you have to figure out how to make it right, to bring it back into right union alignment with this standard. This is not only true of a checkbook, but it's also true when it comes to relationships with each other and relationships with God. There's a standard by which that we can measure those relationships that will actually impact us. If you've got a Bible, open up to Colossians, where we've been reading chapter 1. We're going to look at just verses 18 through 23. And you're going to see that when the apostle is talking about this particular topic, he really does dig into this standard in different ways. So if you've got that Bible, we're going to do some points, and we're going to look at this whole passage. So the first thing that you're going to see in this passage is this. Biblical reconciliation understands the cross of Christ is the standard. So when you look at biblical reconciliation, not banking reconciliation, or just plain relationship reconciliation, when you look at biblical or spiritual reconciliation, the cross of Christ is the standard. It's it's the banking statement. Look at what it says in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile. You may want to underline or circle that. To reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. In other words, your ledger was jacked up, messed up, and not in alignment with God's standard. Now, what's interesting when we think about this is Christ has done this for us on our behalf, but he's also a template for us in reconciling relationships. One of the things historically that's interesting about uh, the faith of Christianity is you were not always called Christians. Did you know that? Does anyone know what early Christians were actually called? They weren't called Christians. The first name given to us was something very different. What was it? Followers of the way is the correct that. So here's what would happen in the church. When people, when, when Jesus first died and the church was very young in those very first early years, you were called followers of the way, not a way, but the way. And the way that you were following was this way that Christ had already laid. In fact, the word that's used here in the original language has the idea of what's called an archetype, which means here's this perfect type. It's the predecessor. It's the, it's the forerunner. He sets the standard, and it's his life, and specifically how it leads to his death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection that becomes the archetype, the living embodiment and template for our lives. And early Christians were called followers of the way. In fact, the way they would follow was so radical, so amazing, it flipped out everybody in the first world. And they got so ticked off at Christians, they said, you people are like little Jesuses. That's what they said. And that's what the word Christian means. Christian means little Christ. You're irritating. You have no creative idea of your own. Like the reality, you just follow this guy. And they were so animate about following the template which Christ had laid down that people around them would get so irritated. They're like, have you not read Plato? We don't care about Plato. We like Jesus. Okay. I mean, it's just like, that's what it was like. It was radical. And this radical way of thinking really changed people. Um, there's an idea right here that's a literal translation. If you have the New American Standard Bible, a King James Bible, a New King James Bible, a literal translation, they translate verse 20 a little differently, which even brings us out more. They say, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Notice it didn't say his blood, but it said his cross. So literally this cross which Christ embraced gave you and I a template for living. It's an interesting idea when you begin to think about it and you begin to ponder what the apostle was communicating to the early church. What's most interesting to me is the cross which Christ bared, you and I can't bear. We can't bear it. Here was the cross which Christ bared. He looked at the entire world and he saw the sins of every single person in the past, in the present, in the future. And he knew that every single one of us was born with this sin nature. He alone was born without a sin nature because he had a virginal birth, right? He was born uniquely among all humankind. And because of that unique birth and the fact that he was God in the flesh, he never committed a sin in thought or in deed. And for 33 and a half years, he lived without ever sinning, without sinning at all, which meant that he could embrace a cross which you and I could never embrace, which is a cross which could forgive the sins of the world. Because the Bible says without the, the shedding of blood, there's no remission, no reconciling with God. And he did that uniquely. But even though he did that uniquely, he did it as a template for you and I. The resurrection, which we just saw through baptism, is this picture, again, of a future reality for each one of us. One of the things I've pondered recently, I don't know why, I, I'm not old yet, where's Tom? 
Tom, are you in here? He left for children's ministry. We were playing cornhole recently at the men's retreat, and I was called old. Do you all agree with this? I'm just curious. The teenagers do, don't they? So here's what happened. We were playing cornhole, and uh, we beat uh, everybody. It was bad. And then Tom said, hey, let's have the youth play against the elders. And I said, which one am I? Yeah. And he said, you're an elder. You're the old. That's what he told me. He says, you're the old guy. And so, but you know, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or I just think about weird stuff, but I've thought about recently burial practices. Is that weird? Okay, that might mean that I am getting older, okay? Um, I don't know when that, but one of the things that intrigues me, I don't know if you've ever thought about, you know, some people pre-plan their own funeral. They think about this, like it, when it done a certain way. You know, early Christians had specific burial practices. One of the things that they would do is they would always bury themselves whole, just like Christ was buried. They would. Don't touch the body, don't mess with me, stick me in the ground, put me in the tomb. And they would always make sure that their face was facing which direction? East. Why? Because they knew that Christ's return came from the east. And they knew that the promise of his resurrection meant one day that they would also receive a bodily resurrection. And when they rose, they wanted to make sure their face was looking in the direction of Christ. He sets a template for you and I that whether it's life or death or parenting or any relationship, we should be asking, how did Jesus do it? And how can I embrace and see that lived out in my life? But the reality is, is that we fall so short. Think about the areas we fall short. We fall short in just about every area of relationship with our work. We look at our work many times as a burden, right? And work actually is supposed to be a blessing. When we think about the church, we think about the church and a lot of times we think about how screwed up the church is and not what the church really is, right? We look at the church sometimes as a burden to even attend or to gather because there's more important things for us to do. With our family, oh my goodness, this is one I feel convicted about all the time. How many ways have I either fallen short of or not actually lived out the standard that Christ has given for my own family? I was thinking about graduation. So many of you, I'm looking at you, I know you just went through graduation. And one of the things that was hard for me is my father wasn't present at my graduation. He was already gone. And one of the dear friends of our family, um, his dad did the same thing. He just wasn't going to be there. It wasn't important enough. It wasn't something he valued. It wasn't something he understood as a standard by which the father should be measured by. That's for dad on shore. And so when given the opportunity, of course, I went to his graduation just as a surrogate dad. It was a way for me to reconcile, to bring back into right alignment. Now, that's a success one, but there's plenty of failures when I think about my own life and our marriages and especially in our relationship with God. We fail so many times, but Christ is the standard. Now, here's the coolest part of his standard when you look at this passage. When you begin to dig into this passage, it says that he embraced this cross and the fullness of deity or Godness is dwelling in him, and he himself made all these things right on earth and in heaven. You see, his cross is so powerful, he bridges the gap for you and I. He bridges the gap with our earthly relationships, that's what it says, right? And our heavenly relationships. But have you embraced it? Have you embraced his cross? It's ironic that Christians chose the cross as the symbol for their early faith. It would be like you and I choosing the electric chair as a symbol of something that happened. And they looked at his cross and they said, this is the standard. And they knew he had bridged the gap through his blood, his atonement, and what he had done. And Christians were so in love with what he did, it changed who they are and how they responded to other people. So I just got to ask you the question before we move on to the second point. Have you done that? Have you embraced the cross? Have you embraced what he's done for you? 
that he not only died for you, but he has bridged the gap for every relational problem you have. There is no problem in your life that is not repaired through the atonement of what Jesus did. No relationship, whether it's father and son, husband and wife, grandparent to grandchild, there's none. Every single one may be completely restored and reconciled through what Christ has done. That's why the Christianity is so unique. It hits every area of our life. And so if you've never experienced that kind of reconciliation, I want to give you a chance right now before we move to the second point. Because the second point will not make sense to you if you've never personally experienced this kind of living relationship. I was talking to a a youngster right before we started. that said, I'm not sure I have that living relationship. This is your moment. You don't need to be in church, but here's what has to happen. At some point, you've got to recognize what Christ has done for you and give all of you to all of him so that his cross might be relived out in your life again. We'll talk about that in a second. But if you've never done that, I want to give you that chance. And so let's just pray and do that. So if you need to renew that relationship with Jesus or you need to begin that relationship with Jesus right from your seat for only God to hear, admit to him how much you've fallen short and be specific Confess to him the things that you find the most embarrassing that you would never want anybody to know about where you've harmed someone else or you've harmed your relationship with God. Just take a moment in prayer and confess that back to God and admit your sin. For those of you still struggling with a specific area of sin, you just can't quite shake it. I want you to recognize it's because you keep trying to fix it and you can't. I can't either. We need to lean into the strength and the power of what Christ has done on the cross. And you and I many times need to readmit that we've been trying to do it on our own power instead of through his. And so if you need to do that, just admit the area of your current struggle as a Christian and tell Christ how much you trust him to work that out. Father in heaven, we believe in what Christ has done for us. We believe that through, his, through the cross, he has repaired all things and made all things new. That this is not just a future reality, but it is a current and present reality. We put all of our trust, our hope in what he's done and not what we're doing or have done. Where we believe and trust Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for the repairing and reconciling of relationships with one another. Now, would you do one more thing in your prayer time? Would you commit to him, knowing that you're going to fail, but knowing he's going to give you opportunities to learn and to grow in your relationship? And would you invite him to come in and change your very nature, your very heart? Would you invite Christ through the Holy Spirit to do that now? And all God's people said, amen. Prayer does not change people. It's the conviction of the heart which changes people. And when I look at this passage, I see that the cross does this. But it changes our very nature. And that's the second thing why you need to understand and embrace first what Christ has done for you. Because in the second thing, you understand that this kind of reconciliation, biblical reconciliation, changes our very nature. 
It changes who we are, who we're wired to be, the definition of our very name. I love that in verse 22. It says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you've had this nature changed within you, no one can accuse you of wrongdoing or sin. Not if you're walking in this faith. Not if you're filled with God's spirit. I love when I was cleaning out my mom's things after she passed away. I was looking through her books and things she'd read. And one of the books I ran into was a book by Billy Graham. And it was How to Be Born Again. And I was like, this is cool. Picked it up and started reading. You know, Billy Graham was just so succinct. And like, here's what it means to have this living relationship with Jesus, right? And I knew my mom had had a religious background. I knew she had got hurt in church and spent a whole season outside of church because of that. But it comforted me to know that she had begun that living relationship with Christ. And we had talked about that. And that she continued to build on that relationship with Jesus. Because her very nature had been changed. Even though she struggled at times with the church, the nature of who she was as a person had been changed. I saw it all the time in the way she treated other people. I saw it in the way that she would worship. She would worship at home. Her worship was not just on Sunday. It was seven days a week. I saw it in the way that she read her Bible. That there was this change in the nature of what was important to her and what mattered to her. And that's what has to happen in you and I. If you've really been born again, as Billy Graham described it, there's a change in your very nature. One of the concerns that you and I should have, two concerns, is you can grow up in the church all of your life, but never have been born again. You could have spent your entire life in the church knowing great things about Jesus, but never have been transformed by your very nature and relationship with him. How do you know that? Just look at the fruit of your life. Do you walk the way Jesus walked? Do you talk the way Jesus talked? Are the things that are important to him important to you? Does he live out in your life the things that should be lived out? This is the concept of grace. And as his grace infuses our heart, it changes us. One of the evidences of this grace that you just saw a few moments ago is baptism. You see, the Bible itself describes baptism as the first step of this living grace. You have this living relationship with Jesus. You didn't do anything to get it. You received it by faith. And so therefore you want to demonstrate that to everyone else. In fact, it gives me pause whenever I talk to someone. I said, have you ever been baptized? And they're like, no, I just can't see myself doing that. Really? Then are you really a Christian? Has it really transformed you? Because your nature is transformed. And when your nature is transformed, you'll do what Jesus did. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. If you don't believe me, read the Garden of Gethsemane. It was anguishing for him to consider the cross. But yet he did it for you and I. It was embarrassing. It was uncomfortable. It was painful. It cost him his very life. But he did it because of his love and affection for you and for the Father. And that's why we do things as we move forward. The other danger that we have to be careful of is it's not works, things that we do that make us acceptable to God. One of the favorite books I read when I was in college was one that was called The Art of Possibility. Some of you would love this book. And the professor in this was a music teacher. And he said one of the problems he had was he had graduate students. And graduate students would come to his class, and the first thing they would ask, because they'd been drilled in their poor little stinking heads through high school and undergrad, is how do I get the A? How do I get the A? How do I get the A? That's all they knew. How do I get the A? It wasn't about how do I learn, how do I grow, and how do I master this skill. And so because he was teaching graduate students, he started to perfect what he called the art of possibility. And so what he would do is he'd say, hey, on day one, I'm going to give you an A if you can turn me in one paper that says you're not a stinking idiot. Hand it in, okay? And he'd give them all an A. And he said, now that you have the A and you got the grade out of the way, can we actually begin to proceed to work in mastering 
the skill by which that you've been called to master in music. This is what it means for Christians, by the way. It's an excellent illustration. You've been given an A already. You know who it was, right? It was Christ. He perfected every dynamic of your faith in advance. By faith, we believe this. Now we walk in him. We begin to perfect the faith in which we walk day by day, not because we have to gain God's favor, but because how much in love we are with the perfection of his life in our life. It's an amazing truth that begins to change us, and it changes our very nature. And the result is people begin to see Christ in us. I love Hebrews 12 too. You can write that off to the side. Great passage. It says, let us fix our eyes on who? Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him did what? He endured the cross. There's the picture again. He endured that cross because the joy set before him. And this begins to change your nature and mine. And when our nature begins to be changed, it impacts our purpose. It changes our purpose. Changes the very reason why we live, the reason we engage with people. Verse 23 says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It changed Paul's purpose. Paul's purpose radically changed. He had this religious background that he was pursuing. He has this thing that he was doing. And now his purpose changed. And he becomes this total, complete servant of this new gospel. Now, i got to deal with this one word that's in the passage. If, right? If. A lot of people read this passage in verse 23, and they say that's where if someone departs from the faith, that they can lose the faith. And some of this is a real challenge for you and I. And it's, just, it's a teaching inside of the church that we believe, which is called the assurance. It's a doctrine of assurance, meaning that once you've actually begun a relationship with Jesus, you can't lose that relationship. Now, some people don't believe that, and it's okay. There's space for that. But actually, in, this, in the original language, that's not what this says. One of the things when you're studying the Bible is you should have multiple translations. Did y'all know this? Some of you know this, some of you don't. So if you stick to one translation, it gets a little stale. Amen? Okay, some of you have been sticking to one translation for way too long. And when you stick to one translation, what happens is you don't begin to see the nuances and the beauty of Scripture. People say, you know, well, which one's the most accurate? There's not really a way to go which one's most accurate because they're all nuanced as they try to pull out the original meaning, whether it's phrase to phrase or word by word. But one of the things that Paul was trying to confront, we talked about this at the beginning, is something called the Colossian heresy, which was there was this idea that people didn't understand faith appropriately. Let me read to you three different translations on this same passage where they do not use the word if because it's not used that way in the original language. I love the message. Eugene Peterson, listen to what Eugene Peterson said. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in the bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message careful not to be distracted or diverted. See, he's translating it from the original uh, meaning. The original meaning was those that really had a deep relationship with Jesus, of course, continued in the relationship. Listen to the next one. There's the new century version. This will happen if you continue strong and sure in your faith. You must not be moved away from the hope brought to you by the good news that you heard. Here's another cool one, the good news translation. You must, of course, this is verse 23, you must, of course, continue faith on a firm and sure foundation and must not allow yourselves to be shaken from the hope you gained when you heard the gospel. You see, translating the Bible is difficult. It's not easy. We've got scholars that have been doing that for us for years, and there's no one translation or one right translation. This is too much for me to hit on a Sunday, and so if I've got your email, one of the things I'm going to give you is three videos 
and also some writings on this so you can understand. Reading multiple translations helps you and I to gain really the, the heart of a passage because then you'll see the seam that all of them hold to. And then when you see that, it helps you to understand what's really there. To give you an idea of why that doesn't always work so well, how many, how many of you use Google Translate? Anybody use Google Translate? How many of you have been um, you know, dumb enough like me to actually take something in Spanish and copy it from there into English or from English into Spanish and then send it to somebody you know that speaks Spanish? And they go, what the heck are you saying, right? Because literal translation doesn't always bring out the thought. It doesn't bring out always the original meaning of the phrase or the heart of something. And that's what happens here. And this is where you and I have to use the Spirit of God living in us to understand the passage. And when we start to look at this passage, you can't lose your salvation. He's talking about how this gospel moves forward. I'm going to give you a couple of different things in this. Just Again, it's not exactly in the point, but I think it's important for us to understand when we look at this passage that you can't lose the salvation that God's given you. In fact, if you want to see it from a different way, look at how um, you look at something when you try to lose something. Have you ever had something and you try to hold on to it? Like you're terrified you're going to lose it. What kind of emotion does that create when you walk around going, I can't lose this, I can't lose this, I can't lose this, I can't lose this. You walk around in what? Fear. But what happens when you say, this person purchased this for me? They've purchased it for me. It's this gift that they've bought that they've now given to me. And they've given it to me without anything that I have to do. And I don't have to, I don't have to try to hold on to this because it's been purchased for me. You walk around differently, don't you? You walk around grateful. Do you see the difference? This is why this becomes important, that we can't think we can lose salvation, but that it's a gift given to us based on what Christ has done. And then that begins to change your purpose and mine. And look at what it did in Paul. This is the gospel he said that you've heard that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And I have now, Paul, become a servant. Paul himself was a servant of this gospel. This is, huff, this is tough for us. You know why it's tough for us? Because everything around us says, what do we get? What do we deserve? We're very much centered on our own personal agendas and how this impacts me, right? Think about the very founding of our nature of our country around comfort and happiness. Have you ever thought about that? Think about these words that most of you had to memorize. We hold these truths to what? Be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are liberty and the happiness. Now, here's what's interesting. We read that today, and we say, see, it's my right to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you forget the founding fathers gave up all three. Have you ever thought about that? The founding fathers who actually fought for you and I to live in this nation gave up all three of those. They put their own life on the line. They took their own liberties and treasures and leveraged them for that freedom. And they certainly went through a pretty terrible season where they were not happy with the current circumstances of this country. You know why? Because they understood this cross that we've been talking about. The cross of Christ comes back around and they realize when you pick up your cross, it changes your perspective. It changes your purpose. It changes my purpose. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25. He said, then Jesus said to his disciples, the people following him, if anyone would come after me, what must they do? Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will 
find it. So here's the key in this passage. And this is what I wanted you to think about this week. You need to identify your cross, your cross, and embrace the mission of reconciliation. What does that mean? How do you identify your cross? There was something that was on the burden and the heart of Christ as he came toward the cross. When he thought about the cross, he said, I don't want to do this. This is not comfortable. This is not the direction I'd hoped for, even though I knew it was the plan from the beginning. But I'm going to do it for the joy set before me for you. So I want you to think about some of the relationships in your life. Is your marriage in trouble? Here's what we'll do. Well, she doesn't fulfill my needs. He doesn't fulfill my needs. You got it backwards. What's the cross that you need to bear? What's the thing that you say, I don't like doing this for my spouse, but I know it will draw them into a better and more pure relationship together. Because the burden is not on her or on him. It's on you to pick up your cross. How would you love them back into this relationship? This is living of Christianity, where you start to think about what you have to do. A lot of times people say, well, that was unfair. That should have never been done to me. Amen. But can you use that to leverage it to draw someone into a reconciled relationship with God? This is when Christianity gets hard, but it gets real. And early Christians understood this, and it's something that's missing, which is why when we delay this, we don't see that reconciliation happen. It can be with our kids. It can be with your boss. My boss doesn't treat me fairly. Amen. Have you thought about the way in which that they don't treat you fairly, how you could actually embrace that and win them into reconciliation with a relationship with God? Now you're living out the cross. Now you've embraced your cross. This is tough for us because as Americans, we're like, I, I, I have rights. You're right. You do have rights. But would you lay them aside to see someone come into a living relationship with Jesus and their life be transformed? This is the gospel, and it was good news, and it's why they called them the followers of the way, because they're like, we've never seen anything like you. We've never seen anything like this, and people, one after another, came into that living relationship with Christ, and so my question for you is, would you identify that? And I just want to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to get Gwyneth to come up and play some, some nice soft tunes on the keys, I just want you to sit and think just for a moment and just meditate just for a second, just for a few, and ask the question, is there a specific cross that God's calling you to bear? Something that only you can bear. Jesus could only bear the cross for the forgiveness of all our sins, but there is something unique that God's calling you to do. And it will cost you something, and it may be painful. It will be uncomfortable. And you will feel wronged. You will feel an injustice in this. But when you lay that down, because you see what Christ has done in laying out this form for you, you will see God reconcile that relationship. He'll break the heart of the person, I guarantee you, that has dealt with you wrongly as you deal with them with love and compassion by sacrificing your wants, your needs, your hopes because of what Christ has done. This is how the church is the church and how they change the world around them. Spend some time meditating 
and identifying that cross, would you please? Father, we thank you for what Christ has done for us, that we indeed are free because of his sacrifice. He reconciled all of us into a right relationship with you. He made the way. All we have to do is believe trust you but God you gave us more than that you gave us a template a symbol a way for us to do the same thing you gave us the ministry also of reconciliation where marriages can be reconciled parent child relationships may be reconciled co-workers neighbors friends if we would embrace our cross in those situations comfort but we'd work to to love by laying down our life Lord we know this is impossible based on our human effort but with you all things are, are possible creating your church a desire to live out the cross and carry it again that many sons and daughters would come to faith because you are alive and that you live inside of your people. Thank you for lives that will be changed. We believe by faith based on our sacrificing our own wants and desires. And we thank you for this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. As you continue in an attitude of prayer, We're going to move into communion, the Lord's Supper. The Lord himself gave us this symbol. It's a symbol to help us to really understand what we've talked about already today, that his body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us. And then he did this because he loves you and he loves me. And so if you call yourself a believer, if you've made that profession of faith, um, you're welcome to participate. In a moment, our deacons will come down. And what we'll do is I'll pass the bread first and we'll hold it all together and then we'll take it as one, one body. Again, symbolic of what Christ has done for us. He's done this for everyone. If you've not made that decision yet for Jesus, you're still holding out, you're not sure, it's perfectly okay to let that pass by. We do this every month so that we can actually honor him regularly, as he said, to do it often.
So I'm going to pray, and then we'll pass those elements. I would love for you to participate again as an act of worship. Our Father in heaven, we are reminded what you did, that on the night that you were betrayed, that you took bread, and after you had given thanks, you broke it, and you said, this is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Thank you. different this time. Just for one second, close your eyes again. Bring to mind the cross you were asked to bear. (coughs) Understanding that what Christ has done for you will also empower you, even if it costs you. And then we thank him for what he's done.
same night, Jesus took a cup. It was during the Seder meal, so it was a cup that they would have understood to be the cup of redemption. And he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you and the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink, and when you do, remember me.
Jesus, when you shed your blood, you said you began a new covenant. It's a new relationship. And in that, you gave a new standard by which that people were to be judged. No longer based on the law, but based on what you accomplished through the shedding of your blood. For each person that believes that, they are forgiven. And Satan has no room to accuse them of anything. We thank you that we are seen as pure, not based on anything we've done, but what, based on what you have accomplished. Amen.